The word of our Lord from the epistle to the Corinthians. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clinging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part And we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to love as you love. Help us to be people who are characterized by love. For you are love. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. According to the Apostle Paul, love is what life is all about. Without love... We are nothing and have nothing. Without love, we are empty, poor, and pitiable. And frankly, it doesn't matter what else we might enjoy having. Love is everything. Love is what it's all about. We can be gifted and still have nothing because we have not love. We can be generous and still have nothing. Not just because we've given everything away, but more deeply because we have not love. John Wesley delivered a sermon at Oxford, The Almost Christian, it was titled. In that sermon, he dared to suggest that some, perhaps a significant portion of the self-professing Christians in attendance weren't, in fact, Christians, but were only almost Christians. Why? 
They were wise. They were intelligent. They were even generous. They were well-dressed, of course. They were soundly orthodox in their theology. They believed that Jesus of Nazareth, a first century Palestinian Jew, was indeed the Lord's Messiah. That he was sent to redeem mankind. That he died on the cross and that three days later he rose again. They believed all the right things. And what's more, they were committed to the cause of the church. They were reliable. They were admirable. But they had not love and therefore they had nothing in the eyes of God. We would say that they seemed to have everything. Everything put together. That they were respectable Christian men. But still, if in the end they didn't have love, then they didn't have the only thing that really matters in the end. For the record, Wesley upset not a few people that day in chapel and he was never asked back to speak at Oxford's chapel. Over the course of the last two Sundays, we've been wrestling with the first two of the theological virtues of the New Testament, faith and hope. Today, let's tango with the third of these three virtues, love. When we think of these three together, faith, hope, and love, most of us remember the final verse of this 13th chapter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Ah, yes. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul uses these three virtues together elsewhere. In fact, twice he uses them in his first letter to the Thessalonians. And interestingly enough, there he orders them differently. To the Thessalonians, he encourages them in their faith, love, and hope. Perhaps there's not much significance in the word order, but perhaps there might be. Could it be that Paul is placing emphasis differently in these letters? Could it be that Paul sees faith as the entryway into the life of discipleship. That he sees love then as the thing itself, the life of discipleship. That he sees hope as what directs our eyes toward the prize before us, which lies at the end of this life of discipleship. Perhaps that explains his word order. After all, his letters to the Thessalonians are very future-oriented. They've begun the journey following Christ with great faith. They find themselves quite concerned, though, about the hope that awaits them. What about those who have gone on before us? What about our dead in Christ? Well, they miss out when we are caught up in the sky with Him when He returns. Here, though, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing a church that is quite the church. Based on all external matters, they have things put together. They are a gifted church. So gifted, in fact, that they showboat before one another who's got what gifts. They take pride in their anointing. And boy, are they anointed. They secretly keep score and self-promote. Maneuvering 
Sure, they have all sorts of skeletons in the closet, but at least they have the decency to keep them in the closet and to keep the closet door shut. Paul affirms the faith of the Corinthians. They're on the right track. They're on the road, the journey, following Christ. He assures them that they have much for which to hope. In fact, in response to some heresies that have sprung up among the Corinthians, he devotes a whole chapter and a long one to the return of Christ, the resurrection of our physical bodies after death when Christ does return. But in the end, what matters is the matter of the heart. Your faith is sound, O Corinthians. You have much for which to hope. But the greatest of these is love. In consideration of faith and hope, we've been careful for these last two weeks to connect these two virtues to truth. As we ought, we want virtue that is rooted in reality. We want theology that is based upon the facts. We've also noted that truth's popularity has been waning in recent decades. Our culture doesn't seem to like that truth character much nowadays. Truth is too confident. Yeah, in fact, truth is arrogant. Truth is condescending. Truth is a bully. Truth is oppressive. Truth is unwavering. Let's get rid of him. We don't like him much anyways. Could it be that one of the greatest reasons for our distaste for truth lies in the claims that truth makes on our love? Our understanding of love. Our understanding of when to love and how to love and who to love. Perhaps we undermine truth so that we can redefine love. After all, at the most fundamental level, love is about value. And we don't want anyone beyond ourselves telling us what to value. Not only do we not want anyone beyond ourselves telling us what our values ought to be, but we don't want anyone beyond ourselves telling us how these values ought to be formed. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll also admit that We don't even much care for that word ought, do we? After all, we demand autonomy. We insist on being self-made women and men. Being who we are. Defining ourselves. It only goes to follow that in our demand for autonomy, we must destroy objectivity. We must destroy truth because truth makes demands upon us. It makes demands upon our values. It makes demands upon our loves. In a self-defining world, truth must go, for it is no longer welcome. In our quest to define ourselves and to assert our autonomy, we can only accommodate truth that is merely subjective to our own experiences. Surprisingly, though, truth isn't very accommodating. It's a bit fixated. It's fixated on reality. 
In our quest for autonomy and self-definition, we must also have values of our own making. To put it bluntly, we resent being made in God's image. We think that it would be rather better to make Him in our image. We want to tell Him what's what, not the other way around. The Apostle John declared that God is love. Notice that he did not say that love is God. He said God is love. As C.S. Lewis explained, there's a huge difference between the two. If God is love, that is, in his very nature he is love, then he is the origin of love. He's not just our creator, he's also the creator of love. In fact, He made us to know Him and to love Him, just as we are known by Him and loved by Him. He wants requited love. He wants reciprocal love. He wants to bestow His great love on us and have us respond to Him with love ourselves. He made us for that. And the Apostle John also declared that we, in fact, love God only because He first loved us. We can love Him because we've been loved by Him. What a thought. We are the objects of God's affection. We are loved by Him. God is so free and so freely loves that He loves us knowing full well that we might very well not even return the favor. And yet He loves us anyway. He's just that loving. Because of the nature of reality and despite our rowdy protests, God defines what love is. What's more, He defines how it ought to be shared. He can do that, for He is our Creator, our Maker, and our Designer. As such, He reserves that right. And on top of that, He is the Creator, Maker, and Designer of all that is, including love. He's the one with the blueprints. He's the head honcho. He's the parent. We are His children. He's the boss. and We are not. So He calls the shots. We do not. We might want to. We might like to think that we do, but we don't. We might like to think that we could do a better job of it, but we can't. He defines what love is. And what does God say concerning love? How does He define it? What did He create love to be? What does true love, love that is rooted in truth, look like? Well, let's get first things first, which is to say, let's consider the parties involved in a loving relationship. Love requires another. It requires an object. The lover must have the beloved. There must be another outside oneself to love. Self-love is unproductive and in the end destructive. It short circuits the life-giving power of love. This is one of the most basic reasons why marriage, which God designed for humankind, is an integral part of that created order. 
This is why marriage, as God designed it, involves a man and a woman, two biologically and fundamentally different image bearers of the triune God. Male and female, the word says, he created them. Such a relationship is not, is not only not unproductive and destructive, but rather it has the potential, the potency, and the power to be productive and constructive. This relationship can naturally reproduce and independently procreate. Now for second things. How does God describe love? How does he describe true love? Not just marital love, but all Christian love. Fortunately, the Apostle Paul offers us quite a few descriptive characteristics of what love that is rooted in truth looks like. He says, love suffers long. It is patient. It can bear with the beloved. It can suffer waiting. We remember as kids, I remember as a kid that the old motto, I think it was a program, true love waits. True love is patient. It is able to suffer and suffer long. Paul says love is kind. It is considerate. It's not a jerk. It's not hot-headed. It treats the beloved with value, with dignity, and with respect. He says, love does not envy. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't hope to take. Rather, it wishes to give. It delights not in its own fulfillment, but in the fulfillment of the beloved. He says, love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It is not vain. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not proud. It is meek. It is able to shut its mouth and be quiet if and when it's needed. It does not insist on being right, but instead seeks to be righteous. You'll remember that biblically, righteousness is about rightly ordered relationships. Paul says, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. Again, it's not caught up in itself. It is caught up in the one it loves. It seeks that which is good, that which is edifying, that which adds value. It thinks no evil for it wishes to avoid devaluing its recipient. And for this reason, Paul says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. True love sounds like a hopeless romantic. Love never fails. So that's what Paul says about love that is rooted in truth. Let's highlight a few takeaways. First, love denies the self for the sake of the other. 
True love puts aside the interests of the lover for the sake of the beloved. Its chief interest is its object, the beloved, not its subject, the self. For me to love you, I must first get beyond me. I must get out of my own self-absorption, my own self-love, my own insistence that I come first, my own sense that I'm numero uno, that I'm the center of my own world. I must learn to get past I in order to get to thou. Love denies the self for the sake of the other. That's the nature of love. A second takeaway is that love is responsible and self-controlled. It does not behave erratically. It does not behave irresponsibly. Sure, there may be times in romantic love when we act like crazy folks and do foolish things. After all, only fools rush in. But Elvis, the righteous brothers, and countless others have insisted, I can't help falling in love with you. But even still, true love does not run over the beloved. It does not hurt or harm the beloved for its own sake. It's not self-interested. It is self-controlled. It is responsible. It always seeks the greatest value for the one it loves, the object the beloved. A third takeaway is that the chief characteristic of love is not feelings, but faithfulness. We are absorbed with feelings in our culture. Everything is about feelings. All decisions are made based on feelings. All of our values are ordered based upon what feels good and feels right. But the problem with feelings is that indigestion is a feeling. And this too shall pass. But love never fails. The chief characteristic of love is faithfulness, not feelings. In, in some of the premarital counseling that I've done, I've made it a point to emphasize that love is not just a feeling. It is a choice. But more than a choice, it's a choice that, may, that remains. It's not a past tense choice. It's a present tense, constantly going, never quitting choice. Because the chief characteristic of love is faithfulness. This is what true love for all of human history until just recently in the West, was understood as faithfulness. To devote oneself to another. Only recently do we associate love with having butterflies in our bellies. Only recently do we think that love means feeling fondly towards someone else. But true love doesn't quit. Even when the feelings are gone. Even when the one we love makes love exceptionally difficult. True love fights. Most of us are used to fighting with our beloved. Am I right? But true love fights for the beloved. 
It doesn't stop. It can't stop, won't stop. Love never fails. It doesn't look for an easy way out. It doesn't look for a way off the hook. It doesn't forsake its beloved for the sake of another beloved. It remains faithful. Always. It does not wallow in its own pity. It finds its fulfillment in being faithful and true. Again, this is true for not just romantic love. All loves are characterized these ways. The love that we have for our neighbor, the love that we have for our enemy, the love that we have for all of the people that God has placed in our lives. Many of us, of course, have romantic love on our minds because Valentine's Day is Tuesday. Don't forget, guys, there's still time. Everybody has chocolate. There's chocolate in CVS and everywhere. Everybody likes chocolate, right? In fact, not only does Paul's discussion of love not just relate to marital love, the immediate concern that Paul has is not marital love in particular, but Christian love in general. The love that we have as the body of Christ and the love that we have for our neighbors, the love that we have for the world. And so how's the quality and dependability of our love for our neighbor? Are we far too quick to quit on people? When they show no willingness to respond fittingly, do we just give up? How about our families? Is our love characterized by the descriptors that Paul uses in the belly of these verses we've considered? Are we kind? Are we patient? Are we deferential to one another? You see, it doesn't quite matter what the other person does or doesn't do. What matters to me is what I do or don't do. What matters is not whether they receive my love acceptingly or return my love appropriately. What matters is whether the quality of my love for them fits the descriptions offered by the one who defines what love is. Perhaps the relentlessness, the unquittingness, the never failingness of true Christian love is why Paul says that love is indeed the greatest of the theological virtues. After all, in glory, our faith will become sight. Our hope will be realized. But our love will only grow ever stronger. For it will behold its beloved, even as it now is beheld by its beloved. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you.